I'm really excited today. Um, this is Kaylin speaking from the EBCO team. We're really excited because we're talking with Brenda. So Brenda is actually my nutritionist who I've been working with for the past several weeks and it's been such an interesting process to go through. Um, it was a big interest area I actually had because of a lot of the trend work that we do. Um, I'm actually gonna let Brenda introduce herself and then we can talk more about how we started working together. Hi, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited to, to have this conversation. Um, I'm a functional medicine nutritionist. Um, so what that means is functional medicine is a new, I guess a newer style of medicine, looking at the way to get to the root of um, health issues. And I think today we're gonna to talk about what a lot of those roots are. Um, but rather than just using a medication to put a bandage on something or even a supplement, um, we want to figure out what's, what's happening in life. Is it stress or biome related or what's happening to, to cause um, distress within people's systems, cause disease? Yeah, I think it's so interesting. And one of the areas that I was interested with was being more prevention focused and not just thinking of dealing with my body once I already had an issue. And so I feel like that's a very difference in like US culture and even in Western culture where we sort of deal with something once we're bloated or once we don't feel good versus actively thinking about it ahead of time. Have you sort of seen any, just in like your experience, have you seen like a bigger shift happening with consumers or your patients wanting to sort of adopt this as more of a lifestyle mentality? 100%. Yeah. It's been a big shift. I think actually, especially since COVID hitting, um, I've really seen a change. Um, I think there's this understanding that, or maybe some people are starting to understand that there's a lot that they can do to prevent. Like when we have a pandemic, I mean, what, <laughs> there's obviously, there's nothing we can do right now. And so we're having to shelter in place and wear masks and all these other preventative measures that wouldn't necessarily be necessary if we were already thinking about health. We were already thinking about what kinds of foods we put in our body. If we were paying attention to the symptoms that we're having, your body speaks to you. So when you're having bloating or indigestion, it is your body's way of saying, hey, there's a problem here. And so um, when we can do things like eating healthy, knowing which foods are the good foods to put into to your particular body, then we can prevent a lot of these um, issues. So yes, I'm seeing a lot more of that now. Yeah, it's really interesting. And like some of the interest areas I had coming into this, when some people think of nutritionists, I think sometimes I think of weight loss or calorie management, which I feel is a pretty outdated term now with a lot of consumers even. So some of the interest areas I was thinking about, which a lot of our clients innovate around are thinking of energy and getting your body to use it efficiently, thinking of sleep and what's gonna ultimately help me enhance my sleep or get more deep restorative sleep, stress, so managing my adrenals. And a lot of our clients are very sophisticated, so they, they know what, some of them know, I should say, what adaptogens are depending on their category. And that might be things that they've thought about for innovation. Where are you like when most of your clients are coming to you coming to you, are there any specific areas that you kind of find is like the number one or two pain point that they have? Yeah. So everybody's a little bit different. Um, there are, you know, there are the traditional weight loss, but yeah, I, I think that, um, I think that you're exactly right. That people are looking at it very differently now. I'd say when people come to see, see me, a lot of people are, are dealing with autoimmune conditions, um, because that's incredibly, incredibly prevalent in society and on the rise in a very big way. So um, an autoimmune condition for someone who doesn't know is basically an immune system that has kind of gone haywire and begins to attack your own organ systems. Um, one of the most common ones, especially with women, is Hashimoto's. So it's a um, thyroid condition in which your body begins to attack its own thyroid tissue. Um, and, you know, and this is tissue that you never get back. Um, so I think a lot of people are finding that they're having these kinds of issues and, and, um, coming in, trying to figure out what is the root of that. Um, sleep and stress are always a big one. Um, I find that a lot of people don't even understand the amount of stress that they're under. We say stressed out, like it's, it's nothing, um, in, in our culture, it's, it's the norm to be stressed and, 
it's really problematic. It causes a lot of blood sugar dysregulation, which leads to adrenal dysregulation and leads to, um, you know, weight gain and fatigue and sleeplessness. Um, and also leads to disordered eating patterns where we start eating on autopilot, not really paying attention to um, the habits that we start to form simply because we're stressed. So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I can definitely relate to several of those that you mentioned. Um, do you have a, you know, a typical client that you would say is sort of an archetype or persona that comes to you? Or do you find that, is it pretty diversified, like different need states, different um, mindsets coming into something like this where they're looking to optimize their health? I'm finding that um, it's, it's actually pretty diversified. Um, I'm getting a lot more teenagers than I used to, um, simply because I work with, I do work with a lot of moms, a lot of moms. Um, and, you know, I've got the, the CEO type mom who's very driven and doesn't have time for herself. Absolutely has no time for herself. She's got kids and a husband or a wife, or, and she's got, um, you know, her, her business, which is also another child. Um, and that, that person tends to be, um, you know, really stressed out where we have to just kind of teach that person how to slow their life down, find boundaries. So it's a lot more than just nutrition. It's, it's really digging into lifestyle. Um, I'm also working, like I said, with a lot of teenagers, um, and a lot of children with, uh, pans, pandas, I'm starting to find this a lot. Um, so we have this subset of, of children, um, that is growing, that are having behavioral issues. Um, and these are on the, the, there's an onset overnight. They are a normal, happy, healthy child. And then overnight they're having very disturbing thoughts or disturbing behaviors, um, that are linked to the toxins in our environments and infections causing inflammation within the gut and the brain. Um, so I'd say right now that's probably the, the, um, the main populations that I'm seeing. Yeah. Interesting. And definitely scary on some extent, um, especially with the children. Well, one of the things that I also wanted to talk about, because I thought the process was really interesting. So the first thing that I've heard when I've told people that I'm working with a nutritionist is like, one, they're pretty curious. They just think it's pretty interesting. I mean, a lot of times I think we think sometimes experts are only for athletes or celebrities or, you know, maybe people who have a very extreme luxurious lifestyle. And one of the trends that I have really been tracking is just this kind of democratization of a lot of experts and because there's so many more coaches and consultants in the market now, I find that there's just more awareness that, you know, if you're looking to optimize or you're looking to kind of improve your lifestyle, there are resources out there and people that have very diversified expertise in specific areas. And so one of the things that um, has been interesting is as I've told people kind of about working with you, I've told them about how extensive the testing has been in terms of the labs and the analysis and just how fascinating it is. So I'd love if you don't mind giving kind of an overview and I don't even mind if you talk through the process we did, but essentially like what kind of is a normal process and how I'm sure for those listening, maybe they're wondering like how scientific is it and how much data is actually used to kind of uncover and make recommendations. Yes, absolutely. Labs. I love labs. <laughs> labs give us kind of a baseline of physiology and a peek into the body that um, we don't get to see, you know, just by, by, I mean, I think, Physical examination can be incredibly important. It's it's a lost art in itself, but um, the the labs um, they've advanced so much over the past even five years. It's it's amazing to see. Um, I start with a, a general panel, and when I'm looking through labs, I'm not looking them at them through the Western lens, which is this broad range. Um, and if you fall outside of it, you get a medication or a surgery because that's generally the way that Western medicine treats, you know, no, no knock on Western med, but it's just, that's the way it is. Um, and then with functional medicine, the range, the, the ranges that we use are, are a lot uh, narrower. And when we do that, we can catch things before they actually become a problem. So we can see things as they're starting. 
Um, and so I'll look at, you know, uh, cholesterol, um, homocysteine, which is a marker of methylation. Methylation is a big kind of trend, I think, um, in, in my world anyway. Um, so looking at ener the energy and detoxification systems, genetics, homocysteine is a good marker for that. Vitamin D levels, um, looking at a CBC, a complete blood count. This is looking at um, your red blood cells and your white blood cells. And white blood cells tell us about our immune system. So we may be walking around with chronic infections, um, viral or bacterial or parasitic, and not really know that that may be a root, that our biome is, is off, our microbiome in our gut is, is off. Um, and so when we can use herbs to kind of get at something like that, we can start to rebalance the biome. Um, and I, I also use uh, uh, micronutrient testing. I love micronutrients. Um, Vibrant America is my like favorite lab company right now. Um, they do both intracellular, so we're looking at the nutrients inside the cell, as well as the nutrients just hanging out in the blood. There's a balance and a ratio that that needs to be had between those. Um, so we know if we have really high vitamins, uh, levels of vitamin D in the blood, and that looks okay, but if you go to look into your inside the cell and it's low, we know you probably need some vitamin K to help transport that vitamin D inside the cell. So it's nice to be able to take a look at the, the micronutrients, um, and then we can tailor the foods based off of that. If you need more manganese or trace minerals, then we know the foods that we can kind of add to the diet to help you get more of that naturally. Um, yeah, and then I think we did some, we did food testing as well. Um, I love food testing because it, it gives us a look at which foods might be causing, if there's any leaky gut. Um, so it looks at, gives us a look at what foods might be causing excess inflammation. And when we can remove those foods and start to heal the gut, um, then we can reintroduce those foods um, and they shouldn't cause inflammation anymore, cause any digestive distress. Yeah, that was really interesting process to go through because I didn't realize how allergic or you said, that, I remember there was two different types of allergies. Do you mind explaining those two types? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's IgE, so antibodies. Antibodies are the um, flag essentially. Mm -hmm. So when there's something in the system that shouldn't be there or the immune system doesn't want to want to have it there, perceives it as a threat, it flags it with an antibody. So an IgE antibody is a true allergy. This is your anaphylactic shock, your um, hives response, and then there's hypersensitivities. And so what we're testing for, what we tested for was um, hypersensitivities and that's looking at IgG antibodies and IgA antibodies. Um, IgA antibodies are our mucosal response antibodies. So mucus is the body's first line defense when, um, when we ingest something and it starts to go through the system, then we secrete mucus if it's problematic and IgA antibodies are within that mucus and they will flag it um, so we can develop an immune response uh, to whatever that pathogen or, or food is. Um, and then IgG are antibodies that are created. So if you think about the, the mouth, from mouth to anus, it is just a tube that goes through the body, okay? So the esophagus, the stomach, the small intestine into the, the large intestine, that's a tube that goes through the body. The small intestine only allows nutrients in. It's, it's selective. But when we have leaky gut and basically spaces between the intestinal cells, food can leak out. And when that happens, or the immune system can kind of access food that it shouldn't be able to, and when that happens, we form IgG antibodies. So we know if we've got sensitivities to food that um, we also have a leaky gut. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting because I was alert, like, well, the panel showed that there were so many foods I was sensitive to. And yeah. it was interesting because I can, some of them I could actually relate to because I've noticed that I, I never really want to eat eggs in the morning. So I wonder if that was my body's way of telling me that I had a sensitivity to egg whites right now. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then what was so interesting is so the other day, um, and so this is kind of for me and Brenda because I had messaged her about it. 
but I accidentally ate some chickpea puffs because uh, in my head they were paleo and I didn't realize I was like, didn't realize they were chickpea as a base. And so I ate them and then I had this horrific night, like after eating clean for, I don't know, 40, day, 40 days so far, 45 days, I had them and I think they just hit my system like a freight train. It, it, like I woke up in the middle of the night, I was sweating. I was like, I felt like I had a fever. I thought I had COVID for about <laughs> half an hour. <laughs> I was like, is this it? Am I getting it now? And while I had to put my head in front of the air conditioning and just sit there for a little bit and I really thought I was getting sick. And it was interesting to have this awareness because I'm sure I've had chickpeas before and not even realized that I really had a response to them. Um, but so I'm just wondering like, how much of a trend or I guess of a, I'm curious in the science world, how, why do so many people go through long periods of their life eating a bunch of things that don't make them feel good, but they don't really notice it until they pay attention to it? Is it because you're just, your system's overloaded with a bunch of junk food or things that aren't good for you? Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's this uh, creeping normalcy, right? So if, and it's the same thing I do this with, with food portion sizes too. Um, when we set a little a little portion size, say you know a cup of of grain, over time that cup to the eye might get bigger and bigger and bigger, or smaller and smaller and smaller. And then when we measure with an actual measurement, we're like, oh wow, that's that's crazy. I was way off. And the body kind of does the same thing. So the worse you feel, it's incremental and it's a little bit over time. So you don't really truly recognize or remember how good you used to feel because it just becomes the norm. Like we say, oh, well, that's just a part of aging. Well, yes and no. I mean, yeah, of course things to begin to break down. The moment that we're born, we begin to die, right? The cells begin to die. And that that's true but we don't have to feel the way that we do we just forget what it's like to feel so good because we so it slowly over time and now today with the food quality and what we feed our children it is, it is the norm for them to feel that way so they grow up feeling that way the whole time so when you clean up your diet and you get this glimpse of like oh my god I've felt this way when you eat something you, you know, that you're sensitive to and you go back to feeling like you did with the fevers and the chills and the pain. It's hard to believe that you actually felt that way all the time and didn't realize it. Yeah, that makes sense. And so I totally get what you mean about creeping normalcy. And then also this idea that I'm sure if your system's like processing a bunch of junk all the time, like you're probably just inflamed and you don't even know it. But how do you account for, I mean, I'm, it feels like I, I would have known if I had like a fever or some sort of like severe reaction before. So is that just with your system being so clean anytime you cheat or you, you know, do something where you're kind of going that, like a very strong, you have a strong reaction to it? Yeah. So um, one of the things that will happen is the mast cells um, in your body. So those, those are histamine releasers. They will actually grow larger and larger and larger because they're not being released because um, it's, it's kind of a constant release um, when you're eating things that you're sensitive to. So that stops because you're taking that out of your system. Um, so it is very common that when you go back to a food, when it's still problematic, that the reaction is actually worse than huh. it was the whole time because it's, it's huh. you know, like getting little bits of poison and then stop and then you just get a large bolus of it. Oh, interesting. That makes a lot of sense. And that's, is that at all related to, so we, I think as we know in the food and beverage industry that allergies have gotten much worse for children with peanuts and other types of food groups. And so there's a lot of companies doing innovation like Nestle or I think they, um, I don't know if it's a peptide company, but they're investing in new types of formulations that can maybe help reduce food allergies later in life. Um, but I'm curious from your perspective, have you, do you sort of have an answer or a hypothesis of why allergies are getting worse for smaller kids? Yes, absolutely. So I like it. It's a, the, with what they're doing, it's like um, exposure therapy. So it's just little bits of the actual, um, what's called the antigen. So the antigen is, is the problematic um, protein structure that causes the allergy. So there's little bits of antigen and they just get exposed to it over time, eventually developing that normalcy. It's a normal response. It teaches the immune response how to respond. 
the allergy problems that we're having now that we're seeing with children, um, I think is, is it's very multifactorial. So we're looking at um, when a child is born, there are over 200 environmental toxins found in the umbilical cord. So there are over 200 toxins flowing throughout that brand new infant, that brand new baby. And we do things um, like, you know, and this is not definitely not a knock on, on vaccines, but giving something like Tylenol for a fever and Tylenol is acetaminophen, which diminishes something called glutathione. This is our master kind of antioxidant, our master detoxifier. And when we run low in that, that can be wreak havoc on the body and the immune system. Um, so I think all the toxins that we're exposed to, the foods, the quality of the food being fed to children, all of the pesticides, um, all of these things play a really big role. And then antibiotic use. There's a lot of antibiotic use, which tears the gut apart. Um, it, it kills off the, the good bacteria um, and that help kind of teach the immune system how to function. Those bacteria are crucial for teaching that. And when we don't have those bacteria to do that, or mother's milk, breastfeeding is not happening very much. Um, vaginal births are not happening as often. There's a lot more cesarean um, you know, uh, births now. So all of these things play a huge role in regulation of the immune system. And when the immune system is dysregulated, that's how you get these allergies and, and sensitivities. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And yet, like at the same time, it there's sort of this interesting contrast that's happening, and we see it in a lot of categories we're in where there's sort of the future progression of like where we're headed just based on the modernization of the world. And then there's this kind of idyllic state of like how we should eat and survive. So it's it's interesting contrast to see like I feel like a lot of innovation from companies could help um, when we think of you know, eventually at some point, we're not all going to be able to eat natural food on this planet. So it's interesting just to think about what that future vision could look like. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I had like, so we had some specific areas I wanted to cover because I thought these were so interesting just in the course of working with you. And so I'm on a lot of, um, for those listening, I'm on a lot of different B vitamins right now. And it's been an interesting process because I didn't actually, I've heard B complex before, but I didn't know how many like strains or variants, um, whatever you call them in terms of how many different forms of B vitamin you can take. And what I felt is sort of, as I've been taking it the last week or two, it feels like I'm just constantly energized. Like I feel like I've had more energy than I've had in the last few years. And so I'm curious if you could talk sort of about one, how do we get B vitamin deficiencies? And also, I'm curious, just from like a form of energy, is this something that people should just be taking? Um, because I sort of feel amazing taking them. So unless I had a, a pretty big deficiency, I'm just curious kind of what the difference is that my body's doing. Yes, yes. So you did have a big deficiency. <laughs> so um, that definitely is, go is going to help. Um, B vitamins are, are, they are required for energy in our system, absolutely required. And um, there's a lot of, and again, this is not, I work with, with um, vegans and vegetarians and paleo. I even have one on a carnivore diet who just insisted so fine. <laughs> um, you know, but we miss, when we go on these very like specific diets, we can miss the food sources that carry these B vitamins. Meat is a big source of B vitamins. Um, so when you're vegan, vegetarian, vegetarian, if you're getting dairy and eggs, which can have their own problems, um, you're, you're gonna get a, a decent amount, but um, we miss through food. And then like the paleo diet, I love, paleo autoimmune, when there's an autoimmune condition, we're just trying to get inflammation under control. Um, it can be very helpful. However, when we take out grains, and I'm not talking about gluten, I think gluten is one of those that doesn't need to be in anybody's diet because there's really no nutritive value left to it anymore. Um, but grains like buckwheat and teff and amaranth and black and brown and white rice and all the grains that, that I've had you eating, <laughs> um, and oats. These things have a lot of B vitamins in them. 
a lot of B vitamins. And so when we cut those foods from our diet, we have a, very, a major fear of carbohydrate in this society, major fear of carbohydrate. Um, when we cut those foods out, we lose those B vitamins. So we do have to supplement. Um, and unfortunately, the soil quality is not as good as it used to be. Um, so even then, sometimes we have to, to supplement when we have high stress lifestyles, we burn through B vitamins because we're burning through energy. That's really interesting. And so I'm curious, like, what are, are there, are there any kind of different, like, I'm curious, there's so many variations of B vitamin I'm taking. So what does like the B vitamin actually do in your body? And I'm, cause I'm curious for our clients who might be able to think about including this in their products or, you know, replicating that feeling or that energy that you get from B vitamins, because we always hear about like the 3 PM crash, um, getting tired. I mean, it's four here four thirty, and I'm not tired at all right now. And I'm like, usually this is the time of day where you start to get like, sometimes people need naps or they, they feel like they have to go into a siesta period. Yes. So I'm just curious kind of how the different variants work that um, you've given me and how maybe that could inspire people to think about energy. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there, there are a number of B vitamins. Um, <laughs> all of them are involved in, um, in one way or another in blood sugar regulation. So vitamin B1 is necessary to actually utilize glucose, which is sugar in the blood. So if we don't have B1, we don't utilize our glucose very well. Um, and then B2 and B3 and actually B5 um, to, to an extent are responsible for creating cellular energy. So we have an energy called um, ATP, and that is basically our energy source for the cells. Um, mitochondria are these tiny little organelles that our, our cells are dense with, and mitochondria create our energy. So they require B vitamins to do that. Um, so if we're low in those, then we create low energy and we can go into, actually we can go into an acidic state, um, which can cause all sorts of other issues. Um, B6, B6 is one of my favorites. It's involved again in that methylation pathway. Um, and a lot of people are deficient in B6. Um, I think we had talked about like carpal tunnel kind of feelings. Yeah. So that can be a B6 deficiency because B6 is actually all the B vitamins, but especially B6 and B12 are very, very important for nerve health um, and nerve regulation. So, and then B6 also converts serotonin into melatonin. So mm -hmm. if we're low in B6, we might be waking up in the middle of the night. So people who take melatonin and sleep better with it, sometimes it's just a vitamin B6 deficiency. And so you can just take that and B6 is involved in so many other things, not only are you helping your sleep, but you're helping out the rest of your body. Um, and then we have B8, which is biotin. Um, and um, that is really important for hair and nail growth. Um, a lot of people take a lot of that when they want their hair to grow better. It's also involved in blood sugar regulation. Um, and then B9, which is known as methylfolate. A lot of people hear about methylfolate, not really sure what it is. Methylfolate works in conjunction with, with B12 um, for the methylation pathway. So again, that's energy and detoxification. Um, and 70% of Northern European descent have some sort of genetic issue in utilization of methylfolate. So often those people should be on some sort of methylfolate or methyl, methyl donor anyway, some sort of, and, and B vitamins for sure. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And some of the things that you mentioned are actually what we see as trends in nutraceuticals. So things like the mitochondria, I feel like the bulletproof diet and that lifestyle. And I think the thought leader, Dave Asprey behind that talk, he's had a lot of supplements recently that focus on mitochondria and getting them to work efficiently. Yes. Do you feel like, is that sort of a, like a wider thing that's happening? Um, that's made that a more popular movement right now? Yeah, I think so. I think people are just turning their attention um, inward and, and really taking a look at, you know, how does our body work? What is the biochemistry? What are the, the little pieces of the body? And so I think the mitochondria, I mean, 
obviously the mitochondria are very, very important in our bodies. Um, but I think it's a smaller piece of the puzzle than a lot of people make it. Um, when we can take step out and actually go back to that macro view and look at lifestyle and look at the nutrients that are going into your body and just making sure that you provide the nutrients that are necessary um, and supplementation is a part of that sometimes, um, then your body as a, a whole will function better because there's not just uh, like B vitamins and, and CoQ10 are really important to the mitochondria, but iron levels are really important to mitochondria. Um, your glutathione levels, your detoxification pathways, making sure that your liver is not congested. So um, I think it's a, it's a important to look at, but, but it, is, it is maybe more important to take that macro look if there's something wrong with, with the mitochondria. That makes sense. Like I could see how it's like solving um, an issue versus kind of looking at the whole system again. Yeah. yeah. Sort of like we do with symptoms. Yeah, and exactly. That's really cool. Well, I love this topic of energy because it, that feels like it has such a huge impact on all of our lives, just how we feel every day in terms of our energy levels. So I think that's a really cool area. And I think while I've been sort of excited to take all these supplements every day and feel very differently. It's gotten me thinking even about, I feel like I'm regulating my body throughout the day. I don't know if that's how you would view it, but it feels like, like I almost look forward to popping a bunch of the supplements in because I know they're going to make me feel better um, throughout the day. Yeah. So that's been kind of an interesting um, behavior that I've developed where I'm like, great. It's like lunchtime. I get to like have all these pills that are going to help me digest my food. Um, and before I sort of was like a crapshoot of like, I might feel bloated, but I didn't have any tool or anything to really help me get through that. Um, yes. So that's been interesting. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. Oh, sorry. So I was going to, I was going to ask the so one area that I thought would be really interesting. That's was really new to me. Um, but I think could be really interesting for um, those listening would be, I'm going to butcher the name, but that Glypho X supplement. And yeah. I was wondering if you could talk about, I saw on the EWG's website, the environmental working group, um, for those listening, it does sort of standard certifications for a lot of beauty products, it feels like, and some food and beverage products. And yeah. one thing that they talked about is they were sort of calling out an oat company saying to remove, is it, how do you say it, glyphosate or gly glyphosate? Glyphosate. Yes. They're asking them to take it out. So I was wondering if you could tell us like what that is and how um, how it sort of permeates a lot of food that we eat and then like what essentially do you recommend to do about it? Yeah, absolutely. So glyphosate is this, um, it's a, I'm just going to say it, it's a terrible, terrible product. It's Roundup essentially. Um, gly not essentially, it is. <laughs> um, so glyphosate is, um, it's a pesticide um, that is sprayed. It's a part of corn. It's heavily sprayed on wheat um, it's, and soy as well. So these are genetically modified to actually have glyphosate built right into them. Um, this was wonderful for Monsanto's, um, now owned by Bayer, their monocrop culture, uh, because it didn't matter you know, what else was, was going on. They only cared about their crops. They only care about their crops. Um, so this becomes problematic. It, it works for the crops. It kills off what's called the sugar mate pathway. This pathway is basically how bacteria create their energy. So when you can kill that pathway off or, or destroy that pathway, then you destroy the pathogens, the bacteria, the parasites, the, um, the, uh, bugs that live on these plants. The problem is we also are made up, our, our bodies are more microbe than they are human cell. There are trillions of bacteria within our guts. So when we consume glyphosate, we, our bacteria, are consuming glyphosate. So the same way that the, the plants can defend themselves using this pesticide, unfortunately, our bodies do the same thing and we kill off our good bacteria. And um, when that happens, that allows other pathogens to grow because everything is competition. Everything is competition within the biome. And so um, 
we have to make sure that we can get this out of the system. It causes liver congestion. It gets clogged within the body. Um, so yeah, I like herbs, especially that Glypho-X to, to help get that out of the system. And is that something, so like I see it more as almost like a protection that you take before you eat. Is that accurate? Um, it can be used that way. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's protective, um, but it's also removal. So, oh, Again, unfortunately, this builds up, this, this compound builds up in our systems, you know, and it's water soluble. So it's, it's in the air, it's in the water, we're breathing it in, we're, we're in constant contact with it. And so, um, yes, in a way, those, those herbs are preventative, absolutely. But they also do help to detoxify and to move it out of the system, anything that's been stored. Interesting. And so is that something like you almost recommend that, um, you know, sort of with your guidance, are people on this for a long time once they start taking the supplement or is this something like once you detox, you're essentially like you're, you've got rid of some of it so you can kind of go on until you maybe need to detox again? Yeah, I usually, I usually go through a bottle with people. If they've had a lifetime of a lot of exposure of, of eating foods that are not organic, um, eating out a lot and, and processed foods, we'll usually stay on it longer because those processed foods, things that are not organic, are generally heavily sprayed. Um, and so and then it'll depend on labs too. If, if liver function looks good and the body looks like it's healing well, then we might take it out. Um, and if it calls for it, we'll, we'll bring it back in. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to learn about, because you hear a lot, I think, in trends about detoxing the system. And a lot of people associate that with maybe having like a heavy holiday period where you were drinking more or you maybe know you've been eating bad, but a lot of times it feels like it's more associated with like heavy foods. And so I thought this was kind of an interesting thing that we might see more and more is around is I feel like organic's been around for a while, but I don't often feel that from a trend perspective, it's kind of like, what's that next level in that gets somebody to really care about buying organic or caring that their food is organic. So I thought this was kind of an interesting kind of emerging tension that I could feel that as more consumers get educated, they'll be more concerned about uh, making sure that their food's free of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I hope so. I really hope so. That's, that's why I like the environmental working group so well. Um, but uh, I think that it's, it's, it's hard too, because there's, you know, socioeconomical issues as well, um, as far as not being able to eat organic, because unfortunately, it's more expensive to do that. Um, so not our whole population is able to do those things. But the awareness of what is happening, um, I, I hope that that's growing. Yeah, me too, as well. And so that kind of dovetails even into, we talked earlier about stress being such a big issue in our society. And we alluded a little bit to adaptogens, but I was wondering if you could talk about some of the things that you see as kind of useful tools for managing stress, but also uh, if that's, you mentioned earlier, it was growing. So what are some of the things you feel that I guess are helpful for people to know about stress and maybe things that can help your body regulate that better? Yeah, so I think it's really important to understand um, that stress is kind of the root of everything <laughs> that is dysregulated within the body. Um, I think in many ways, it's, it's in our society, the root of a lot of disease. Because um, when you look at the word disease, it's dis-ease. You know, disease is a, a process that's a normal process that's supposed to happen in the body, but it goes on for an extended period of time. And that's how we get disease because it's this extended period of time that there's a dysregulated process. We don't go back to our normal homeostatic, like, you know, what we're, where we're supposed to be. Um, and so, um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so stress. Yes. Um, and so I think it's important to understand that, um, you can stress yourself into type two diabetes, it completely dysregulates blood sugar. People are always worried about this belly fat that they can't get rid of. They exercise and exercise and exercise and can't get rid of it. Well, cortisol is one of our stress hormones. And when we have a lot of cortisol, it actually uh, moves, uh, removes fat from the periphery or mobilizes fat from the periphery. So the outside of the body, the, the limbs, to the center of the body, to the inside abdominal area. 
So, and that's because we can um, use that energy and we need that energy because we're constantly in this fight or flight mode. So people worry about this stress belly. Oh, I can't get rid of it. I do all the abs. I do the CrossFit. I do the exercise. Um, and it's more about getting their lifestyle stressors under control. High intensity exercise, doing a ton of it on top of having a high, high stress lifestyle um, doesn't help anything. High intensity cardio, you know, it's, um, it's important to, to just understand that stress is, is, is the root of a lot of these issues. Um, to, sorry. No, that's great. Um, and sorry if you hear me clear my throat. I have a little bit of, um, some seasonal allergies. So <laughs> it might just be sounding like I'm trying to say oh, something, but okay. Well, you had, I was going to, you had asked about, um, the best ways to like reduce stress. Yeah. Uh, I think the best way to reduce stress is to get outside, get into nature, get your feet in the ground. There's actual legit scientific research, clinical studies, a ton of research showing that when you put your bare feet into the ground, it reduces these cortisol levels. There's DC energy coming or uh, a type of, of energy. We have AC and DC. There's DC energy. It's what our bodies understand. This is coming from the ground. So when you can put your feet in the ground and just breathe for a little bit, that actually reduces the cortisol. It reconnects you. It reduces cortisol. Um, and then activation of the vagal nerve. So the vagus nerve is this nerve that innervates, it's the 10th cranial nerve. It innervates the um, adrenal glands. It innervates a lot in the body, but it also um, touches the uh, digestive system. It's responsible for our gag reflex response and it innervates the vocal cords. So when you can do long, slow exhales, you turn on this vagus nerve meaning you turn on rest and digest. You turn off fight or flight, you turn on rest and digest. So breathing is one of the best things that you can do. Long, slow exhales. You can add a little bit of a, like a uh, sound to it, a kind of a low vibration. That helps as well. Activate and eventually over time you can form vagal dominance. You can stay in that, um, parasympathetic or that rest and digest uh, state. Yeah, that's great. And definitely I think a lot of us could relate to that just because of how culture and work are today with like always being on and always like thinking about work, especially when you're working from home. Yes. Yes. <laughs> now we don't, get, we don't get to escape it. <laughs> totally. And a lot of products. So one of the big trends we've seen for the last several years has been adaptogens making their way into a lot of our food products. So um, Ashraf Ganda, I think I've seen a lot of, um, there's, Re is it Rishi or Riki? Rishi, yes. Rishi, Rishi. Yeah, Riki is the energy. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> um, so a lot of Rishi and Ashraf Ganda and a lot of products. So do you, is that dosage actually enough to do a lot in those products? Or is this something or adaptogens that you're supposed to take more regularly to see um, advantages of? I was just curious because I see a lot of times I'll see it in like cold brew coffees or energy bars. Yeah, so it really depends on the adaptogen itself. So ashwagandha is one of those um, that for some, it can be problematic if you have an autoimmune condition, it's a nightshade. Um, ashwagandha has a much more, um, if you look at it in Chinese medicine, um, yang or yang energy. So it's much more masculine. I generally recommend ashwagandha um, for those who are more masculine, but some are the, uh, for men. But sometimes there's there's just a, a synergy with it, um, and you having it in a drink once in a while is it, it may help a little bit. Um, you may feel some effects, but it's one of those herbs that if you have chronic stress, you want to use an adaptogen over um, over you know at least a month up to a few months to really get the full effects. Um, Tulsi or holy basil is a, a more feminine style, but it's a little bit stronger. So we, you start a little bit slower with, uh, with the holy basil. Holy basil tea is a nice way to, to kind of introduce that adaptogen. Um, 
those are really kind of the the two main ones out there. Um, I use a few others, but uh, I think it depends. I have people who use um, who use them when they need them. They'll use them for a while in the beginning, then they feel really good. They'll go off of them. They'll start to go through a really stressful period, so they'll start taking the adaptogens. And adaptogen just means that it's going to help your body adapt. So it increases um, adrenal response when it needs to, or you know, holds it back when it needs to. Plants are amazing messengers um, that have molecules that that just help our bodies regulate. Hmm. That's interesting. And is there any like, I mean, I'm sure with anything, like too much of anything is not a good thing, but is there any danger of using adaptogens? I mean, one of the the things a lot of our clients worry about and is they worry about claims a lot because they do not want to make claims that one, there's a sort of a legal risk of them saying it's going to, the ingredient's going to do something when they don't have a clinical study or they don't have proof or they haven't um, invested in that, that type of trial. Yeah. And then also I think it's like most of the time it's like all of our clients don't, they don't intend to be disingenuous with any innovation. They're really just trying to adapt to things that consumers are interested for and trying to come up with better products and really a lot of it has actually been geared towards in the last several years, like reducing sugar, moving towards things that are functional, much healthier for, for everyone. So I'm curious, like with adaptogens, is there any kind of risk when it comes to just sort of putting those in products or any of the other, even functional ingredients that you can think of? You know, I mean, that's a, it's a big question because yes, there's always a risk, but um, there's always a need as well. So I think that as long as the dosage is not, you know, extreme and, and most companies are, unless they're like a, a specifically branded, like physician only supplement, um, if it's generalized and, and available to the public, most companies are pretty good about doing the, the minimum dosage. Um, and so you can always take more if you need more, but mm. I think over, over time, there's not a huge risk, especially with herbs. Um, some we, we have to be careful with. Um, like I said, holy basil is one that if you're taking something with Tulsi or holy basil, take it for a little while, maybe one to three months, and then give your body a break. So just see, you know, um, maybe something you don't do continuously. You take a break to see if you notice a difference. Yeah, interesting. And that even got me, like, spurred to thinking. I had heard from, you know, somebody a couple years ago, or it might have even been a few months ago, it feels like this year has been so long, but they mentioned that, you know, CBD, they had concerns that using it at the sort of maximum dosage every day for extended period of time would start to do liver damage or would start to um, have some kind of negative impact in your body. Is there any kind of truth to that from your perspective? Have you seen sort of anything about around CBD since that is such a hot ingredient right now? Yeah, so I don't do much with CBD. I really don't. Um, I I think that I think it's true of anything, and I do think that you do have to be careful. One, you also have to be careful when they look at this. The CBD is the sourcing. You know, um, the the plants that it was grown from were they organic? Were they tainted with anything? Um, a lot of times they don't pay attention to that. You know, how was the extraction process? When you look at the extraction, um, you know, was there a hexane or something else involved in it that also could be causing contamination? That's really where the liver damage is coming from. So you have to be really careful when sourcing your ingredients and paying attention to your company that you're, you're getting it from, knowing that they're reputable and you trust them. I think max dose for anything should always be short term. Because if we're taking the max dose, um, it's, it's the most of what our bodies can handle and it may even be too much to begin with. Mm -hmm. So I think starting lower, um, if you're gonna intend to take it long-term. And again, so with something like CBD, I think it's absolutely wonderful to reduce pain, but why is the pain happening? Yeah, that's really well said, especially that kind of leads us into that next area around inflammation in the body. and. I feel like so much of that was the focus of going over the labs and seeing where there was inflammation or seeing where your body's telling you that something's causing inflammation. And I had read this really interesting article once that it said that what's interesting about inflammation is it's your body's response. So you need inflammation if you're healthy, but then like, obviously we probably pervasively have too much inflammation now. 
um, because we're not paying attention or we're just eating things that we're having a sensitivity to. But I was curious if, um, like in general, do you see kind of inflammation as kind of this big frontier for innovation now, just because there, it is so chronic? I do. Absolutely. So I think inflammation, um, for, I think inflammation is one of those buzzwords, but people don't really know what it means. Oh, I'm inflamed. Well, inflamed means that your immune system is active. And so absolutely little bits of inflammation are important because the immune system is what causes inflammation. So we have to have inflammation to know that there's a problem. It is a signal. There's messengers that cause inflammation purposely so that they can tell the rest of the immune system there's a problem, um, whether it be you know a cut, an injury, or an infection. But we go, our immune systems go way overboard because we have constant inflammation. We are constantly assaulting the body with toxins from the environment, with the foods that we eat, um, with uh, a dysbiotic gut. So, you know, a gut that is out of balance. And, um, you know, this, the leaky gut is an inflammatory response that happens. And then we, um, get another like say food that causes that inflammation causes an inflammatory and immune response that causes more leaky gut and so we're in this constant cycle inflammation is really a disease state right it's a normal process that should happen but it continually happens for long periods of time because we're not dealing with the root of the inflammation and does inflammation for most people, does it tend to concentrate in one area of the body or is it just kind of anywhere that the body is like sensing? Because I'm curious, like when your toes hurt or like I tend to get inflammation, it feels like in my um, shoulders when I'm stressed out. So how does it tend to concentrate in one area for some people? So I think that's just where we sense it. Um, there's also the, you know, then that now we're looking at the potential issue of looking at cranial nerves and looking at those are the, the nerves within the, that go from the brain to the rest of the body, their sensory nerves. So there may be nerves that are not functioning quite right because there's inflammation within the brain, but we don't see the brain. We don't feel the brain. Mm. So we feel it in our shoulder and it might just be something that's actually going on um, within the, in the nerves. It could be that there's a lot of inflammation in both shoulders, but maybe the left shoulder you don't feel because that cranial nerve is not working quite like it should, or the, mm. the sensory nerves are not working quite like they should again, because of inflammation. So um, there's a lot of neurological issue that goes with the sensory where we feel, where we feel pain. That makes sense. And also, um, it reminds me of like when you can, I connect the dots cause I've tried cranial sacral therapy before. Yes. And yes. that was an interesting process. So what I sort of, for those maybe who don't know what that is, I I've only went once, so I'm not an expert, but what I envisioned that she was doing is it's sort of like a massage where it seems like she's almost like clearing your nerves out or like getting flow back to your body. Is that accurate? Yeah. So I've, I've had one course in, in craniosacral. <laughs> so I am not an expert at all either. Um, however, I have a couple colleagues that, that do craniosacral therapy. Um, really what you're looking at is the fascia. The fascia is the connection between um, the skin and the muscles and the, the, well, and organs as well. And the fascia gets wound up. And so with craniosacral, they're using about the pressure of a nickel and just unwinding, feeling the body and the fascia itself and how it wants to unwind. So they're literally unwinding the fascia, allowing energy flow back through the body and communication with the, the nervous system. Yeah, that's really interesting. I remember really liking it. Um, I think it was prior to COVID happening that I, I got to try a session. So I'm curious to try it again once things are kind of back to normal to a certain extent. Yes. Oh, it's um, my favorite. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing for stress reduction. One of my favorite stress reduction techniques. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I remember feeling really relaxed and it was interesting. It almost felt sort of like when you do a shock, if any of those listening are interested like in chakra meditations, but it feels like you kind of connect with the body and you can actually start to feel things inside your body, uh, which is always really interesting when you actually pay attention and you take that time to kind of decompress Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much for talking with me and going over nutrition trends. I think our audience will find this really interesting. And I guess I wanted to leave with, are there 
any areas where you would say you sort of see nutrition headed or what the biggest needs maybe that your clients come to you where you feel like there needs to be more innovation or there's maybe a gap in the market or a need that a company could fill? Yeah. Mindful eating, um, teaching people about their habits around food, bringing awareness to those habits. Um, because when we are constantly eating on autopilot and trying to change our habits, we're using willpower. Willpower does not work long-term. We have to bring awareness to what our habits are, not just around food, just every day, our stress habits, our daily habits. Um, so just learning awareness is, is a really, really, really big thing so that we can actually make change. Yeah, I remember like when, so you had shared a mindful eating course that you had created with me. And at first I was thinking like, when I think of mindful eating, I just think of like measuring or like making sure like I'm not eating too much. So at first I'm kind of like, you know, I'm like, oh, I don't need help with that. Like yeah. <laughs> I'll just, I can be restrictive when I want to be like, I was like, I can, you know, I won't, I just know not to eat, go and eat sugar and you know, of course I think of things of like, you know, you eat the whole potato chip bag when you're not realizing it. I was like, you know, I just won't even eat the potato chips then. Like, I just won't have that problem. But what I thought was interesting was when I dug into it, I saw there was a lot of like subcomponents of mindful eating. Do you mind just kind of highlighting a few? I know some of them were like um, sounds or like audio cues or things that, um, or I guess it's the same thing, visual cues, I mean, like different colors. So do you mind just highlighting a few kind of maybe more nuances in mindful eating that maybe aren't expected when you think of that topic? Yeah, absolutely. Because mindful eating is really eating with your senses. So being aware of the visual cues when um, we don't pay attention, when we're sitting and watching TV and the food commercial comes on, all of a sudden we're hungry and we're going to the pantry or the refrigerator or the refrigerator and you know pulling something out not listening to our bodies. Our bodies did not say that we were hungry. There was no hunger signal. It was just an automatic response because the TV said, be hungry, you know, or hearing, um, um, well, hearing ads, hearing in a restaurant, hearing other people eating, being social, um, and then also just not paying attention when you're being social and everyone else around you is eating, you continue to eat too. We just stop listening to what the actual signals in our system is, our system and our bodies are saying. Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of times when I'm doing research, if I'm looking at food for a while, I start to get really hungry and then I'll yes. even want that same food item for dinner. Um, yes. <laughs> I always tease my husband's like that, where if we talk about, if we talk about something at lunchtime, he'll for sure want it for dinner. So if someone's talking about pizza, like for, um, an event in a couple months or something like that's the same food that he'll want later. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, we're so programmed. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. This is so great. I feel like this is going to be really interesting. And so as a sort of a recap for areas, I guess, or territories of innovation and how our clients think about things. I think there's one like thinking about testing. So for those in the pharma space, it's maybe thinking of development of new home diagnostic kits or lab kits. I think energy is a really interesting territory when we think of the different roles that B vitamins play. And I think there's a lot of room there as probably most, the majority of consumers aren't thinking about all of these different variations, but maybe they're having some of the pain points around energy crashing or sugar regulation. And then we talked about pesticides and how that's sort of prevalent in our food. But I think going a, la a deeper layer with organic could be really interesting and in talking about brands that really spell out kind of, I mean, the fact that you're actually connecting the dots between eating a pesticide or something that's not a pesticide was, that was one of the things that actually converted me over to starting to want to buy organic now since working with you. <laughs> um, and then stress and adaptogens. And I think stress overall is a really interesting territory. We're seeing more innovation there, especially in farm, the pharma aisle starting to be reconfigured where you're seeing more functional medicine products and like the sleep aisle. Um, and now there's kind of a section on just stress management throughout the day. Um, and then we also talked about inflammation. So if you've ever been to true food kitchen, that's one where they, you know, claim to be built around this kind of anti-inflammatory eating process. But I think there's also just a lot of room for educating on inflammation. And since I think I'm going to venture to guess most people might notice it after at night, especially when they're laying down, 
Um, and that's kind of an area where I think it kind of correlates to sleep and there could be some interesting opportunities there for new products and things that might help people feel more comfortable at night. Yes, yes, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And how did, so I guess as a final point, how can people reach out to you if they'd like to learn more, um, work with you potentially, or do some nutritional consulting? Yeah. So, um, my website is best. Um, and that's just energized E N E R G I Z E D wellness.net, not.com.net. <laughs> um, and then there's a little form you can fill out at the bottom to, to get in touch with me. Um, my email is, is, is good as well. It's Brenda at energizedwellness.net. Yeah, and also just throw out there that I've been working with Brenda remotely, virtually throughout COVID. And at first I didn't want to start because I was thinking that, you know, oh my gosh, with everything going on, I'm like, I don't know if I want to add anything more restrictive to my lifestyle, but it's actually been really fun. Um, one, from a research perspective, I think most of you would probably geek out over all the recommendations and all the advisement. But then two, I think it's really satisfying to feel like you're doing something good for yourself during this time. And it's actually helped me regulate the stress and anxiety I might feel um, during a lot of the situations we've all been kind of cumulatively going through the last few months. So it's actually been, I think, the perfect time to sort of engage in something like this. And um, as you can see, she's sort of a wealth of knowledge. If you have just any general questions or you're formulating a product or you're thinking about innovation.